0: It's way more pervasive than we think it is. We're measuring everything and analyzing everything. And that's a great thing if we're doing it skeptically. There is a big problem in the data science industry and in every industry, really, where you get a result and you, you shout hurrah and you fling the result out into the world and you move on to the next thing. But there's no time to stop and critically evaluate that result. And this is one of the crucial aspects of my projects and something that I really want kids to learn to do, which is to critically evaluate their own results. And this is where the the difference comes in really between the textbook questions where you just look it up and you either got it right or wrong and doing real problems where there is no right or wrong and you have to verify your solution.
1: Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam,
2: and you're listening to The FOIL Podcast.
1: Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age.
2: What it means for you and what it might mean for us all.
1: Hi, Linda. Welcome to The FOIL. Thanks for being here. Can you tell me what inspired you to get into data science?
0: Thanks so much, Christy. It's awesome to be here. I didn't get into data science initially. And in fact, I went to university intending to do a degree in biology, specifically interested in genetics, and I did computer science as a fill in subject. I needed one more unit to do in first year. And I've always liked, you know, machines that go bing. <laughs> in fact, I think the reason I like machines that go bing is my cousin Chris gave me his old Commodore 64 when I was a kid. And I, you know, mucked around with BASIC and it had a tape drive and I plugged it into my big old TV in the living room and it was a new world to me. And I was lucky because he gave me that before I was old enough to start receiving the messages that that wasn't something I was supposed to be interested in. Not that I've ever been terribly receptive to those kinds of messages anyway, <laughs> but you know, I got into it before I knew that this wasn't something girls did. And so I just kind of bypassed that whole bias and stereotype thing and decided it was fun and something I could do. And so when it was an option to do it and In first year, I just grabbed it. My third year, I wasn't studying anything else.
2: Where does this message come from? When you were ultimately encountering this message that there are expectations that are gendered, where is that message coming from? Who's it coming from? What does it sound like?
0: It absolutely comes from everywhere. And I think this is a problem because some people will say, oh, you know, our house is fully gender equal and we never tell the girls they can't do anything and blah, blah, blah. But Every time you see someone hacking on TV, it's a guy. Every time you talk about, you know, someone who's really into computers, it's someone like Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory. You know, it's someone that girls don't see themselves doing that stuff. Uh, And it's it's changing a little bit now, but the messages are still really strong to the extent that I still hear stories of girls in school, girls I've taught, so, you know, young adults now, but only recently in school, saying, oh, my teacher told me I shouldn't do that. Girls just aren't interested in that. Or I was the only girl in the class and the boys were kind of making life really tough for me. Or um, my brother got a computer when he was 10 and I got a Barbie doll. (laughs) Like, just kill me now. (laughs) This stuff still happens. Um, The the messages are pervasive and... um, Unavoidable, and even if you have a gender equal household, which I, I question that anybody actually does, because we've all been raised in these incredibly biased, almost bigoted households and societies. Like it's, it's the messages are much stronger than we realize, and if we think we're gender neutral, it probably means we're just kind of a little bit less biased, but not. <laughs> in fact, sometimes the people who think they're less biased are actually more biased, but that's another story. Um, but yeah, you you don't have, there, there is no such thing as a gender neutral environment when kids go to school or to play group or to, uh, or just watch TV or, you know, things on YouTube. Now it's the messages are really strong still that girls don't do STEM.
1: Yeah. And if they and- do do
0: STEM, they do biology, which is, you know, is where I was heading. So even though I right. had fun playing with computers, I'd still obviously absorb their message.
2: So, and so that's, is that why you went into biology?
0: Oh no! Look, I really like it, and I'm still. You'll say there's a bias towards biology in a lot of the projects I do because they're just really interesting. Um, but, but it was. It felt like that was somewhere. It never occurred to me to go into computing because it just it wasn't a pathway that I saw as as open to me or as relevant to me.
1: But
2: ultimately, you did go into computing. You found your way back onto the path that you have had such a massive impact in since then, doing your honors in, in computer science at Monash. So what was that like? How did you find your way ultimately back to computer science?
0: Well, like I said, by the third year, the only thing I was doing was computer science because I was just, you know, my whole career, I followed the things that seem interesting. And and I think that's a really good strategy because it, you wind up somewhere you want to be if you, if you just kind of follow the interesting things all the way. Um, but I didn't intend to do honors. I did not, in fact, get the marks to get into honors. Um, I left and went. Got a job in a software company, hated it, was miserable. And friends of mine who were in postgrad said, you should come back and do on it. So I was like, wait, well, I haven't got the marks. So and they went, No, you should come, you know, you should come back and do on it. So that was one of the first times where I learned that if you want something badly enough, you can find a way to do it. So I knocked a few doors down and I had some support from these postgrad friends of mine and I got in. And then I got offered a PhD by Damien Conway who is extraordinary um, and the PhD was in designing and programming language for teaching and it was just sort of all of my interests rolled into one and it,
1: it sounded like something that was really important. So, and so how did that PhD set the foundation for the work that you're doing today?
0: The PhD taught me that designing a programming language for teaching programming is exactly the wrong way to do it. (laughs) Um, So I, you know, I learned a lot, but the programming language I designed is not useful because that's, it's not useful to give kids things specifically designed for teaching. Uh, It's not useful to give kids toys to learn programming in. What's useful is to give them something real to do. And that was my first sort of taste of that. In fact, when we did, when I did first year computer science, we used to teaching language. And the overwhelming emotion in the year was frustration that we weren't doing something real and something we were going to be used, going to be able to use in the real world.
2: It's funny how often that turns out not to be the case, isn't it? I wonder if maybe, Linda, you could um, you could maybe elaborate a little bit on on when you say we're designing a programming language, what's a programming language? How do you go about designing one? And specifically, how did you approach doing that for teaching?
0: So a programming language is really just a way of giving instructions to the computer. Like right down at the base level, computers take instructions and ones and zeros. But if we were to try to write out how to, you know, design a web page or something in in ones and zeros, it would would be pretty hard to do. So the programming language is a kind of translation from human to computer. And a lot of the programming languages are quite a lot closer to the computer end than they are to the human end in terms of, you know, readability. And just if someone was to come along and try to understand what a programming language was doing without experiencing that language, it's often difficult, if not impossible. They tend to be designed by very technical people for very technical people. And that's a barrier to entry for anyone else trying to enter programming. Uh, One of the things that we know from teaching programming and from researching that is that a lot of kids... Uh, come in with programming experience and again that's often boys because they're the ones who get given the opportunities earlier on they're the ones people think will be interested the ones who get given the computers and who get given the tools to code and the toys you know the robotics toys and all that kind of stuff uh, and they come in with a lot of programming experience so then you have kids next to them who have no programming experience and they see these kids who can already do this stuff and they think i can't do this i'm too dumb to do this when actually it's just that they haven't had the same exposure so that's that's a, a big barrier you know, you throw people into a programming language that's not really designed for human readability, it makes it hard for people to learn. So I did a lot of research in my PhD on what the barriers are to people learning programming and what what makes it difficult and when people make more mistakes and when they make less mistakes and all that kind of stuff. And then I pulled that together into a language that was designed to be readable and, and easy to use. And, you know, the language itself shows all of my biases in terms of all of the programming experience that I already had uh, and, and in a great blast of hubris, I called it GRAIL, which stood for Genuinely Readable and Intuitive Language. (laughs)
2: <laughs> that is awesome. Aiming high. That was so cool.
0: Uh, it was not.
2: <laughs> it was a muted <laughs> knot <laughs> That's actually. Could you That's tell me um, I hear this set of programming languages that are really popular nowadays? In particular, I'm thinking about Python. Python is it's written in a syntax which is as sort of human readable as possible. Would you agree with that? How how does the Grail language compare and contrast with a, a language like Python in that paradigm?
0: Python is a lot closer to human-readable than most programming languages, but it still shows a lot of uh, the sort of technical bias of computer scientists. For example, you start counting at zero, which most human beings do not do. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um,
0: And there are some sort of solid reasons for that, but you know, there's a lot of ways that programming languages in in general and Python in particular can, can trip you up if you think that they are English. Uh, because they're not, you know, and they don't work in the same way. For example, and and or have wildly different meanings in programming than they do in English. And and, and <sighs> I constantly saw students getting horribly confused thinking that and would do what they expected it to do when it actually was this technical Boolean operator that worked in, to them, wildly unintuitive ways. So, you know, we're not there. We haven't designed the language that people can use to program. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that people... Our language is incredibly ambiguous and context sensitive and you know we misunderstand each other all the time. If a computer misunderstands you when you've programmed something to you know fly a plane, that's pretty bad. <laughs> the consequences yeah. can be challenging. So you there has to be a separation between natural language and programming. but I think we're not there in terms of programming languages. programming language designers tend to be highly technical people. And they don't necessarily understand how the rest of the world thinks. Um, and also, it's just—it's just really hard. It, it is really yeah. hard to do. And um, if you design that language to be the way people think, then you have to make sure that it—you know—it's useful enough to um, to get to do things in the real world. Because again, if you've designed the language, that's just designed for people to learn you lose the motivation part and motivation is like 95% of the battle. If you've lost motivation, you're just not going to get anywhere.
2: And so in terms of the Grail language then, <laughs> what were some of the ways that you approached trying to make it more human-like?
0: Oh, man. In hindsight, I would do it very differently. It was it, it was a very shallow attempt to make it readable, I think, and, and, and sensible. And, you know, we're going back over 20 years. So <laughs> I don't remember it all that clearly. But it, 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 you know, I tried to make the language work as close to English as possible, given the, the constraints, but also things like the equals sign in computing means usually in most languages, it means actually take the value on the right and store it in the box on the left. But that's not what equals means in math. So, And that causes a lot of misconceptions. So I had, instead of an equal sign, I had a left-facing arrow to indicate (laughs) that what's in the right goes into what's in the left. And little things like that actually make a surprisingly big difference. People get stuck on all of the sort of little syntactic uglinesses of programming, and that blocks them from constructing a really good mental model of how it all works and actually learning how to program properly.
1: So thinking about it now with the work you're doing at the Australian Data Science Education Institute, how are you seeing this play out because your objective here is to ensure data literacy and data science is part of the Australian education system by supporting teachers to uh, help in this area. What what are you seeing today?
0: One of the interesting things about my work is that I, well, to me, maybe not to everyone else, is that I set out to help people learn programming. Like that was the whole goal of everything I was doing. Actually, that's not my goal anymore. Um, That's a a a nice side benefit. I'm still a computer scientist at heart. I would still love everyone to learn to program. But I'm much more interested in kids learning to be rationally skeptical, creative problem solvers who use STEM skills to do real things and who know that STEM skills are tools they can use to change the world. For me, that's the core of it. The programming is something they can use as a means to that end. But if they're just doing it in spreadsheets, that's fine too. Like I'm not, I'm not worried about the tech. The tech isn't really interesting. In fact, for a presentation I just did recently, I have a whole slide that says, what tech do I need? None. Because <laughs> <Like, laughs> yeah. not, it's not, it's not the, the, the important part. Should I use R or Python? Should I use Excel or Google Sheets? Should I use Tableau? I don't care. What I care about is that kids are learning to, to solve problems that don't have textbook answers, uh, so then they have to learn to actually evaluate their own solutions. How well does this work? Where does it fall down? Like, imagine if that was taught as a fundamental. Every kid learns that as a basic skill. I always have to evaluate my own results. And then imagine if we translated that into business and
1: government. Imagine if governments regularly evaluated what they did. Well, I think that's the dream. So yeah. tell me, <laughs> what what are some of the problems kids are solving? my
0: very the very first kind of project i did in this area was with my year 11s in back in 2011 and they did cancer research um and uh, it was you know i had enough academic contacts that i could talk to scientists and go tell me what you need and i'll see if my kids can do it um so that my year 11s were doing real projects as part of their year 11 computer science experience and um you know, I thought, well, okay, I've had year 11s doing cancer research. That's it. I'm done. Like, I'm out. I can never top that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> My work here is complete. Right?
0: Like, I have peaked too soon. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we went on to do um, projects in psychology, in sleep science, in neuroscience, and astrophysics, conservation ecology, wildlife monitoring. We did projects in politics
1: so exciting. Absolutely. So tell me how does it work? You, you know, um, how are you getting kids using vast data sets, I imagine? What we we'll through how a project might work.
0: Well, sometimes they're vast, sometimes they're tiny, like the the actual size of the data set, it, it depends on on the topic and also on the level the kids are at, so we can have five-year-olds doing data science projects where they find a problem in their own community and they measure it, and and that might be you know counting bits of litter, um, and then they analyze that. And for the five-year-olds, that's going to be you know stacking blocks because we had five chip packets, so we're going to have five blue blocks, and we had six ice ball wrappers, and we have six green blocks, or so, you know that level. And then they try to come up with a solution they implement the solution and then this is the important part, they measure it to see how well it worked. But built into that is the fact that, you know, the first measurement might not be under the same kind of conditions as the second measurement. You know, if you use a letter example, uh, that might have been a very windy day and half the letter might have blown away or it might have been that the grade fives were all out on camp and the grade fives are real messes. You know, like it, it, it could be that there's a any number of different reasons why a particular day might not be comparable to another day and that's a really important conversation to have because you know this comes up in data science all the time as you guys would know that the measurements are not necessarily what you think they are and two measurements that you think are comparable are not necessarily exactly comparable and that's to know that no data set is perfect if I teach them nothing else I'm really happy with that you know and then the senior kids can be doing can be doing cancer research with you know massive data sets and everything in between
2: The world will always throw at you confounding variables that are very difficult for you to tease out. That's just a fantastic example of that. In Simpson's paradox, you can show that by taking account of a variable that you haven't collected in the data set that you're analyzing, the conclusions that you'll draw come out to be precisely the opposite. What is it about skepticism that you see is so important for young data scientists, for teaching data science, or for teaching mathematics? Why skepticism?
0: So I think there's a, there's a number of different aspects to that. One is that there should be no result or no kind of accepted truth, which is not up for debate and question, but it should be rational, evidence-based debate and question. So I don't mean vaccines are going to give you, you know, better 5G reception. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, you know, actually examining the evidence and going, well, you know, I'm not sure this is true. That's the way m- all of our great scientific discoveries have been made. You know, um, the talk that was sort of the genesis of the book was all about the, the heretics in science. You know, from Galileo to to Barry Marshall, who you know had to drink Helicobacter pylori in order to prove that it caused ulcers, which he could then cure with antibiotics. Like his work was derided because it was um, it was against the the orthodoxy at the time, and I think we spend a lot of time valuing orthodoxy when actually we should be challenging it more. Uh, and in fact, we'd have not we'd have had a much smaller problem with COVID if we'd been more willing to challenge the orthodoxy because the story of how COVID was um, figured out to be airborne rather than aerosol is mind blowing. So the difference being that aerosol is droplets. So that's the you know you cough, you sneeze people get the droplets on them and get sick and the droplets fall to the ground, right? But airborne is actually tiny, tiny particles and they stay in the air. So that's why it gets out in hotel quarantine because they go through the ventilation systems or they hang in the air of the corridors. You open the door and the particles get out, all that kind of stuff. But there was a an orthodoxy that viruses like coronavirus are not airborne, they're aerosol. And uh, it took there's a scientist by the name of Lindsay Ma who went through this incredible process. I, I recommend googling it and I talk about it in the book as well to to prove that it actually is airborne and therefore masks work, therefore ventilation is key. All of mm-hmm. the things we now know that that it took, even though the proof was there, Lindsay Ma proved that flu was airborne in 2011, but she couldn't get it published because it went against the orthodoxy. So we
1: have to challenge the orthodoxy. Back to the book, Linda, because you talk about the book, you talk about data and data science being in charge. You talk about we're in the data age and therefore uh, data scientists are shaping the future. Why do you
0: think that's the case? It's way more pervasive than we think it is, you know, from um, controlling traffic flow to figuring out um, what hospitals we need and and sort of managing staffing. We're measuring everything and analysing everything. And that's a great thing if we're doing it sceptically. So there is a big problem in the data science industry and in every industry really, where you get a result uh, and you, you shout hurrah and you fling the result out into the world and you move on to the next thing because that's you know the time pressures, the commercial pressures are that you need to keep, keep producing. But there's no time to stop and critically evaluate that result. And this is one of the crucial aspects of my projects and something that I really want kids to learn to do, which is to critically evaluate their own results and learn that they're not perfect, that no solution they come up with is going to be perfect, that nothing they do is unquestionably right. Um, And this is where the, the difference comes in really between the textbook questions where you just look it up and you either got it right or wrong and doing real problems where there is no right or wrong, and you have to you have to verify your solution. Um, that's that's the you know that that really essential difference, and that if we're relying on data to shape the world, we need to be skeptical of that data. We need to recognize where the data is flawed because all data is flawed. We need to recognize where we're not measuring what we think we're measuring. Um, <laughs> one of the issues that I've seen in education a lot is that um we take, uh, exam results as measures of learning and they're not. We're not measuring learning, we're measuring performance on the exam. Now we like to think that's the same and we hope it's close but it's not the same and we forget that so we get a lot of schools going, the aim is to maximise our VCE results or the aim is to um, to get good NAPLAN results. I'm like, that's not the aim, that's a measure of the aim.
2: <laughs> it seems the best perhaps that we could possibly hope for is a really good proxy for learning. If they're not a good enough proxy, Linda, in your estimation, what do you think we should be doing differently?
0: Hmm. Everything. (laughs) (laughs) Everything. (laughs) Um, um, You know, I don't think we should be doing exams. I don't think we should be using exams to measure kids. I don't, I, I think we should be getting kids to do, to evaluate their own results to evaluate their own solutions to be doing real problems that that prepare them for problems in the real world and learning skills along the way. You know that's not new. That's problem based learning that's been around for decades. But we don't apply it broadly enough in schools and where we do use problem based learning often it's toy problems again where there's a a known answer and a you know guaranteed this is how you get 100%. The real world's not like that and we're not preparing kids for the real world if we're not giving them that experience of problems where they have to try to evaluate their own results. They have to figure out, well, why do I believe this is correct and where might it be wrong?
1: When kids have these skills and in data literacy, but also in problem solving and scepticism, how does it change the world?
0: All of those kids that you hear about who do remarkable things like Greta Thunberg or kids who, you know, solve scientific problems at 10 or make amazing apps at 13 or whatever those kids are amazing but they're not actually outliers the way we think they are they've just been supported to do real things so if we had every kid able to do that if we had i mean have a look at what we've done to the world and ask yourself whether you think it's in good hands we need the kids coming through to be able to to challenge us to say this is our future you're messing with and we have solutions, you know, we, we can fix it. We can help you fix it. But at the moment, what we do is we tell kids that they, they need to sit down and be quiet and do what they're told and, and, you know, do the same thing as everybody else and come out the end, nice little obedient process followers. Those are not the people we need to solve the problems that we're facing today. We need people who go, I'm not sure that's right. I don't like the way we're doing this. Let's try and do this better. Let's, let's, let's measure it. Let's evaluate it. Let's use the evidence and build better solutions. That's what we need.
1: And what we see in the work that we do is that data can be a terrific tool for a better conversation and enable collaboration, collaboration across many different stakeholders. And you talk about the need for policy and evidence-based decision-making in governments, but also across all of society. Can you talk about some of the examples you and groups of students have worked on um, that are Informing policy, or are there any examples of that or improving how people collaborate?
0: So, I haven't seen examples of it really feeding into government policy yet. I hope we will. But certainly, it it can feed into policy in schools. So, one of the projects that I did with my students back when I was still teaching was um, we had this fancy new building that was supposed to be all very environmentally sensitive and stuff. But the the conditions were terrible. It was very noisy. It was very hot and very humid. And the school struggled to get the education department to pay attention to that. So we measured it. We we put in sensors to go. What you know? What's the noise like? What's the temperature like? What's the humidity like? Just track the conditions. We actually felt there were very different conditions around the school. So the people who said it's much colder over here than it is over there were absolutely right. You know. We used to refer to the bottom floor as as the Arctic, the second floor as the temperate zone, and the top floor was the tropics. Um, and so, you know, we proved that that was the case. Uh, and and then you, once you've got data, you can feed that through to actually get, you know, get change made. And I don't know where the change did get made in because I, I left but uh, <laughs> you know it, it, it's very easy to say that's not a problem until someone provides you with the data that shows it actually is.
2: I'd love to know more about how you turn the scientific approach back on the on this problem of teaching. It's kind of a return to the to what you were saying earlier about not wanting to use exams and pretend, and getting kids to evaluate their own results what's the measure at the end of it? Is the effort to measure education a fool's errand in and of itself? Is there a measurable that we can look for?
0: There's a, I think it's an economist in New Zealand who, I can't remember her name, but she said that measuring something, the act of measuring, I mean the standard quote is the act of measuring changes what you're measuring, but she said that the, you know, when you measure something, you, you, start to pull it towards the measurement. Schrödinger's students. Yeah. So if you have, say, NAPLAN, what you wind up doing is aiming for NAPLAN. And this is what schools say. They say, we're aiming to improve our NAPLAN results. I'm like, well, what I would like to think is that you're aiming to to improve your literacy and numeracy and that NAPLAN is a measure of that. But they... The test becomes the focus, and so what we wind up with in, say, the science curriculum is kids having to learn a bunch of facts and known processes uh, and regurgitate those. And That's not science. What we're teaching there is confirmation bias. We're teaching kids to do pracs where they know uh, the inputs and outputs and they know what they're supposed to get, and if they don't get what they're supposed to get, they fake it until they do. (laughs) That's confirmation bias. That's not science. We know that, you know, the actual process of science is to, to test things, to try to disprove your hypothesis rather than try to prove it and actually not know the outcome try to understand new things. We can do that in classrooms. That's no problem. But what you wind up measuring then is not the result. You wind up measuring the process, you know. So you're assessing when a kid comes to you with a solution, how good is their evaluation? You know, have they really challenged the solution? Have they really tried to prove it wrong? Have they really tested it and verified their results? That's measurable.
2: Is there a risk that you end up introducing many biases in the place of only one then? If the teacher is required to evaluate the degree to which a student has challenged themselves or tried very hard to unpack the hypotheses or find the right hypothesis or design the right experiment, so much of that is open to interpretation and quite subjective how do you avoid the biases that get introduced by the teacher in that environment
0: well humans are biased and you can't eradicate bias entirely i think what we what we forget or have kind of swept under the rug is that exams themselves are not objective unbiased measures um you know, they are they are measures of people who do well on exams to some extent. And there is a whole slew of inequities built in to exams as as measurement. And I I've often have people say to me, Yes, but you know, how do you validate this form of assessment? And I'm like, Well, how have you validated yours? <laughs> like, well, we've been doing it for decades. That's not validation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember I had, um, I was doing engineering and I had an, a teacher in, um, in structural mechanics. The trope with this exam was that this particular lecturer would make it longer and longer each year with the objective of filtering out more and more kids who wouldn't be able to finish the exam. And it seemed so divorced from anything that, you know, I ultimately wound up doing as an engineer. At no point has anybody got a stopwatch timing you to get to the solution in that particular design problem or, or whatever it is.
0: And separating you from any resources that might help you solve it as well. That's not a thing that happens in the real world, ideally. Uh, But also, you know, when you go to the doctor, do you ask them what their exam results were?
1: (laughs) Is that how you choose your doctor?
0: Or do you want to know how good they are at being a diagnostician and how good they are at communicating and how well they understand your issues? (laughs) It's, It's not, you know exams are not a useful measure of it of anything except exam performance
1: so in schools where you're working now Linda how receptive are the schools and teachers to teaching data science well
0: I'm lucky so far in that my is
1: still pretty young we've been around for three
0: years and I'm I've I've been kept really busy working with the teachers who are really on board but um, early on I was I was... Uh, Asked by the head of science at a school to to work with all of the senior science teachers, uh, and so he sent out an email and was like, you know, you all need to set up a time with Linda. And <laughs> the silence was deafening. And I had one student come to me, uh, one sorry, one teacher come to me, and she's a chemistry teacher, and she was like, well, I've got to, you know, I'm going to do it sooner or later. But she she came to the meeting looking like she was coming to. You know the gallows. She was she was terrified. Um, she's extraordinarily good chemistry teacher, uh, but terrified of data. And so we w- went through her her kind of curriculum, and I and I we talked about errors. And I was like, you know, so maybe we build into one of your pracs actually have the kids look at the errors, actually look at the 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 experiments that went awry, rather than looking at just the the right outcomes. And she was like, oh. I could do that and I was like you know we can we can gather the 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 whole cohort's results so not just your class but everyone's results on that prac and look at the variation and you know look at how this we have this this formula that says exactly how this prac come out it it doesn't come out like that what are the ways in which it does come out just like oh oh that's easy I can do that I'm like I know you can and once we talked she was like Oh, this is fine. <laughs> but so, before that, she was just terrified. And that's what we have to get over, which is why I don't call my workshops data science workshops anymore because I get no sign-ups.
1: But I call this, them STEM workshops and then people come and it's the yeah. same stuff. <laughs> is that because data science seems so mysterious? It's scary for people, right? And so can you unpack what is data literacy, you know, and what has to happen for people to become more familiar, comfortable with data science?
0: Data literacy is everything from, you know, that question I talked about before, what's wrong with this data set? So as soon as you get a data set, you go, okay, where are the problems? How is this not the data? You know, how is this proxy data rather than what we actually want? And how is this, you know, where are the flaws? Through to things like when someone shows you a graph, you ask, where's the zero on that scale? You know why is there no zero on the y-axis is that you know are you trying to mislead me here or what was the sample size of of this you know you're saying 50 percent of people say this well how many people did you survey was it two <laughs> because that makes a difference you know it, so it's 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 being able to ask those critical questions. Data literacy is not necessarily doing any data science yourself, but it's being able to look at the data you're presented with and, and ask those skeptical, critical questions. And just think about not bending at the knees when you see a graph, but asking, wait a minute, where did this graph come from? And you know, one of the things that's happened all throughout the pandemic is that a lot of the data is being communicated as log graphs. Which is perfectly scientifically valid, but completely ludicrous when you're presenting to the public because most people don't know how to read a log graph and don't know what it means. And nor should they. Like, <laughs> I don't I don't think we should expect the general public to understand log graphs, which means we should have been presenting that data as linear graphs because we know how to read those. Most people know how to read those. But as soon as you do a log graph, people read it as a linear graph and get a completely skewed idea of what the data is doing. So... <sighs> For those who don't know what a log graph is, it's it's going up often in powers of 10 rather than, in, so a linear scale goes up 10, 20, 30, 40, a log graph goes up 10, 100, 1,000, you know, it, it, it's an entirely different shape of graph with the same data. So it's being able to look at that and go, hang on a minute, that's a log scale, <laughs> Show me the linear version and, and just things like that.
2: That seems really interesting to declare that the general public shouldn't need to know about log graphs. Because what I also heard a lot discussing with folks how to communicate concepts throughout the pandemic was humans are really bad at reasoning in exponential terms. Oh, yes. We're much better at reasoning in a linear fashion, particularly when it's linear in time or linear in growth or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this, the pandemic was simply not that in any way. People would be looking at 10 cases here, 20 cases there and going, well, like that's nothing. Why are we so concerned? And the reason we ought to be concerned about that is because exponential growth is a completely different ball game. Yep. Twenty cases will very quickly turn into two million if you don't have a handle on it. So, how do we address that? Where do you where do you draw the line between what people need to know and what they don't?
0: Well, I mean, to some extent, that's a communication issue, right? If we're if we're publishing that as as log graphs, then we're not communicating effectively because people are not understanding what we're publishing. But also, it's not hard to understand exponential growth. It's actually not, but we don't teach it well. And I did a couple of videos, just like little five minute videos early on about what exponential growth means, and you know, when the hospitals get overwhelmed and that kind of stuff. And people were like, "Oh my god, I understand it now." I well, if you can understand it from a five minute video of me just sitting at my desk, very little planning, just going, "Here's a graph," you know, "Here's a, <laughs> a sequence yeah. of numbers. This is what yeah. happens in ten days' time." That's not, you know, it's not hard to communicate. And that's a real indictment on the way we teach it at schools. I didn't understand it at school either. Just to be clear, (laughs) we can be getting this message across much, much better than we are.
2: The concept I wanted to come back to, which is another picked up on in your book was misinformation. Real problem, obviously, in communication, particularly science communication, where we're told to follow the science, underscore the word the in that sentence. Fascinating. how do you decide what is misinformation and what's not? And then how do we go about teaching people to recognize it and address it?
0: The interesting thing is a lot of misinformation is very, very easy to debunk. But the trouble is, by the time you've debunked it, it's already got around the world. You know, the, the, the Pratchett quote, I like is a lie and run around the world before the truth has got its boots on. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're, getting, you're busy getting your boots on trying to, trying to sort of put together the, the debunking, but it's too late because it's out there and people aren't looking with with skeptical eyes, and yeah. so step one for me, it's, it's sort of I feel like I wish I'd started thirty years ago. But step one is teach the kids that sort of skepticism. Teach them not to just swallow what they're given. Um, and and misinformation in the internet age is particularly challenging because it comes from your friends, you know, and we trust our friends, and and we should trust our friends. But but that you know, it it we found there was one study that showed that something like 90% of the COVID misinformation came from nine people. That was some time ago, but, you know, the, we can stop it if, if we don't just uncritically share it and we check. And there are a lot of things that, that we want to share because they feel right. And those are the ones we need to check more than anything. And I think if you learn to check your own biases and check your own results and evaluate your own work, That's going to come some way towards challenging that. I want to share that because it feels right sort of thing and
1: learning to, well, can I just check that before I share it? So looking to the future, Linda, are you sceptical about the future or are you feeling positive and inspired about young people and their engagement in the data age?
0: I'm just so amazed by how much more aware and informed kids are than I was at that age, or oh, God, even than I was when I was 30. <laughs> my kids know so much more about politics and social justice and the environment. And my goodness, one of them's allowed to vote now. She's going to really kick some butt. She's going to make change. And a lot of the students I taught were like that as well. They're just so much more active and informed and empowered. And that's why I think the projects that I run are so important because they're all about giving kids the power to actually make change now, to solve problems in their own communities now. And kids want to do that. They don't want to play with toys. They want to do something real. They want to make change. They want to fix all the rubbish that
1: they see going on around them. If we give them the tools to do so, there's just nothing they can't do. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today, Linda. It's fantastic and congratulations on all your work. Hopefully we can create that connection between the work you're doing with students and with policymakers in government. That would be a great thing to do.
0: That's the goal. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great to chat.
1: Thanks, Linda. And everybody
2: get out there, have a look for Linda's book, Raising Heretics. It's a great read, well commended, and also Terry Pratchett for that matter as well. I think that's another thing that ought to be deeply embedded in the Australian curriculum and every other curriculum.
1: Wholeheartedly agree.
2: A healthy dose of Pratchett. (laughs) Lots of wisdom.
1: Thanks, Lita. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast.
1: Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our
2: guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.